Okay, with that, why don't we go ahead and open our Bibles, if you guys have one, to the book of Matthew, chapter 6. Uh, if you guys are new here, we want to welcome you. We are sort of in kind of the middle stages of a series going through the Sermon on the Mount that we started at the very beginning of summer. We will come to towards the end of summer, and uh, we will start a brand new series in the fall. I'm pretty excited about it. been studying it a lot, and uh, hopefully you guys have been praying. Maybe even I would encourage you to read through it as well. We are going to be starting in the fall a series through the book of Revelation. Uh, it's a book I have not taught in a really long time. And uh, I'm really excited about it. It should be a great time. So I would definitely covet your guys' prayer. And uh, I would highly encourage you guys to even start reading through the book of Revelation. I know sometimes people get a little bit freaked out by it because it can be a little bit hard. Uh, but I encourage you to read through it because uh, hopefully God will speak to you. And once we start it on Sunday morning, God will then begin to speak to you in a lot of greater ways, hopefully. And we can take it way beyond this church and see God do some cool things through it. So with that, what I want to do before we jump into the text this morning, I want to kind of give you guys a little bit of direction as to where we're, we are going to be headed. Uh, we have finished chapter 5. It takes about nine weeks to do it. Nine weeks, chapter 5. How many verses are in chapter 5? It looks like there's 48. So uh, it took a while. But we made it. We are now jumping into chapter 6. Um, what we're going to look, be looking at this morning, um, before we move into this, I'm going to pray. <clears throat> the little section we're going to be take, taking a look at is verses 1 through 6. And Jesus is going to be really addressing some key issues. And I'm going to basically break it down into three main issues that Jesus is going to be really uh, considering, talking about, which we will also consider, and then we'll also talk about and then I'm going to pray, then we'll get to work on it. The first issue that Jesus is going to really be talking about is this whole issue of acts of righteousness. What does it look like to do really good deeds, or the way Jesus uses it, acts of righteousness. Secondly, a hope of reward. What is our hope of reward? What drives us, if you would? Uh, what motivates us? What uh, is it that drives us with a sense of initiative and propels us and moves us and fuels the actions that we do. Jesus is going to hit that. And the last thing is this. Kind of a big question. Who are you really? A right, big question. Who are you really? Are you truly a person of good character? Meaning you make right choices. Not because outwardly you're worried about the way everybody's going to think. But you make good choices because inwardly you're a different person. You're a person that has been made righteous therefore you make right decisions or wait jesus is going to really bring up the issue are you a actor are you a hypocrite are you somebody that just sort of acts the part looks like something that you're really not those are the issues that jesus is going to address i'm going to pray right now that we'll get to work on the passage so if you guys would join me we'll pray and let god begin to speak to us Father, we ask you right now that you would um, just open our eyes. We need your spirit to speak to us. Uh, this is, these are big issues that we just, we're de desperate for you now to come, to open our hearts, to give us ears to hear. We don't want to just simply read the Bible and just amass more information. God, it's not our intention to just simply uh, have better ways to argue with people. Lord, we want the word of God to be like a light that shines deep into our hearts, deep into our souls, and confronts us. And God, out of being confronted, us change. So we just ask you right now, Father, that you would help us and have your reign over our hearts and over our lives and over our time right now. And God, I pray that anything that I say that's just not from your spirit, that is just sort of uh, marginal, that's, God, just let it fall by the wayside. Let everything else that is from you, let it... Go to our hearts and change us, we pray. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. All right, I want to begin with a few slides, okay? So I want you to keep in mind something. The slide, hold on just a second. Don't show the slide yet, but I'm going to set the stage for you. The slides that we're going to be looking at have to do with counterfeits, all right? Because Jesus is going to be talking about character, hypocrisy. So I want to show you guys some, uh, some slides that have to do with counterfeits. Now, counterfeiting is a really big deal, all right? It's really big because... Uh, uh, there's, there's these big massive companies like Nike and Sony and, uh, you know, they make very, very expensive products and they have a lot of money that goes into research and development 
And then they have a lot of extra money that goes into packaging and selling and reselling these things around the world. And then you have these like little knockoff companies that come around and they make these like little knockoff type uh, products that look like it, but they're really not it. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you bought some of those things, right? And you get them from eBay. You're like, sweet, I got an iPod for 40 bucks. It's awesome. You get it home and it's like a piece of junk, right? It doesn't even turn on. And you realize that this is a counterfeit. And so Jesus is going to be talking about counterfeiting, but what I want to do is, is, is sort of big, uh, d- dig a little bit of a bigger context for this so that we understand how, uh, how we deal with this, especially with, within our own world. So here's a couple pictures of counterfeit. So here's the first one. All right. In some Asian country, I have no idea where this is at, um, KFG. You can go to KFG. Um, it's there. I, I was in China one time, and I actually went to a... Starbucks, but it wasn't called Starbucks. Can't even remember the name. It was something Star. I don't even know what it was, but it was. It looked just like the logo, but it was not Starbucks. All right, here's another one. Oil of OK. You gotta love that. All right. I mean, I don't even know how great Oil of Olay is. I mean, to actually knock that off. OK. All right, here's another one. If, if, you don't, if you don't have the money to buy, like, Nike socks, you can get Evike. Or Ivike, all right? It's a total knockoff. Okay, here, here's another one. All right. Not Sony. Squinny, or whatever. I don't know how to pronounce it. S-Q-N-Y. Total knockoff. Um, here's another one. Okay, so take a look at this. It has the Apple logo on it, right? You look at it a little bit closer. Look at the buttons on the bottom. If you have an iPhone or know somebody who has an iPhone, there's like one button. That's just like, uh, that's the way it's no, it recognized. This thing's got like five buttons on it, right? So obviously a clear knockoff. Here's another one. Abibas. You can get, in another country, an Abibas bag, all right? A knockoff. All right, we know that all these things are obviously, you know, mode in USA. All right? Again, another tag. The, the reality is these are obviously all counterfeits. And you can look at them, you laugh, they're funny, they're real though. I mean, this, is, this, this actually happens. And one of the biggest problems for it, or the reasons why this is a big problem for these big companies, because like I said, they spend a lot of money in research and development, spending a lot of money marketing these things, spending a lot of money to make sure that the product is actually good. It's good quality stuff. It's one of the reasons why they've been able to build their companies to become so big, so reputable, and have such a great name for themselves. So when you have another company that comes along, Eviki, and basically rips off Nike and says, this is our product, and you try it on and the sock falls apart, and you realize it's a piece of junk. Or you, rather than you thinking you're buying yourself a Sony radio, instead you get an SQNY, and you realize the thing barely turns on or can even find a station, it's just a piece of junk. It is a misrepresentation of the actual real product. And this is obviously, as I mentioned, a problem for big companies that are actually uh, spending a lot of time trying to track down these types of little companies that have these little knockoff products because of this. And in the same way, this is kind of what Jesus is really talking about in this little passage that we're going to be reading in just a moment here. Jesus is concerned that his followers, or those people that claim to be his followers, actually do follow him. Now, following him is not just simply living or adapting to a particular type of a lifestyle, but in reality, it involves who you really are. What you're really like. Not just what you do. This is very important to distinguish. Because what was going on was it it was easy for people to think that isn't just about what we do. That is kind of what the religious leaders were all about. Isn't it about the way that we act or how we do things, or the way that we look. Isn't that the important thing? And Jesus' whole point is, no, that's, it's, that's not what's most important. What's most important is who you are, is what you're like inside. Because what you're like inside will ultimately determine what you're like outside. We have this ability to somehow be very corrupt inside, and yet put a face, or a mask, if you would, is the literal word that Jesus uses. We have this ability to put on masks that cover up who we really are. So what happens is, you know, we can go to church, we can look like a particular type of person when in reality we're not that particular type of person. 
Or we can be a part of a Bible study or go into an office and act like we're somebody, but in reality we're really not that person. And most, most of the time, nobody ever really finds out. Nobody ever really knows because all they see is the mask that we put up in front of us. That's all they really know. And what happens is we become so adept at this, so good at this, that we're actually capable of helping and, and growing in such a way where our actions can somehow correspond with the masks that we wear. This is all making sense. Some of us are really good at this. I mean, exceptionally good at this, that we have everybody fooled. But the problem is, is we just don't fool God. We don't fool God. And at the end of the day, what ends up, the reason why this is such a, tragi- a, tra- a travesty, especially in light of Christianity, is because fake people really represent a fake God. Okay? You don't represent the true God. You end up representing or putting on display a God that's really, truly not real. So here's the point. When people look at your life and they begin to draw conclusions about your life or from your life of this is the way God is, what happens is because there's a fakeness about us or there's something that's plastic or not real, the image that they get about God is really not an accurate depiction of what God is really like. This is why Jesus is so concerned about this. It's because God is not fake. God is not fake. God is real. God is genuine. God is the way that the Bible would term it. God is holy. Meaning he is good. He is perfect. And therefore God wants to be represented. Or, here's another way to put the word, re-presented. God wants to be re-presented through our lives as holy. As good, as righteous, not as fake, and not as something that's not revealed within the Bible. So what Jesus is going to do, he's going to basically try to drive to the very bottom, the core of this. Why is it that some people live in such a way where they feel the need to actually be something they're truly not? Alright, so that's where we're going to head with all this. So if you guys wouldn't mind opening your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 1, I'm going to read... And then we'll get to work on this. But what I want you to be aware of are those three statements or those three words that I started off with. First of all, having to do with acts of righteousness. Secondly, having to do with hope of reward. And the third thing, which has to do with character. Even though the word character does not appear, sort of the antithesis of character does, which is hypocrisy. Or Jesus is going to put it this way. Don't act like a hypocrite. Sort of the uh, inversion of that is be a person of character. That's in essence where Jesus is going with this. So Matthew chapter 6 verse 1 starts off like this. Beware of practicing your righteousness. So this starts off as a warning. Meaning that we are all prone to this possibility of happening in our lives. Okay? So be aware. That's what Jesus is saying. Be aware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have your reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in their synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have, their, they have received the reward. Verse 3 says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Next slide says this, so that your giving may be in secret and that your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 5 When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and they love to pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So here's where Jesus is going with this. The first thing we're going to take a look at specifically today is really this issue of righteousness. It it appears several times throughout this passage, and it has to do basically with um, certain deeds or certain activities. Some of your translations uh, may not say righteousness. Some of them might say acts of piety. Does anybody else have anything different than uh, works of righteousness other than that or alms or anything like that? Anybody? Barely heard something. Charitable deeds. Anybody else have anything other than charitable deeds? Acts of righteousness, piety, anything like that. I think that kind of covers it. All right. 
So I think what Jesus is trying to drive at, he's basically tapping into a concept that was sort of central in first century Judaism, which actually in a lot of ways is still central in Judaism today. It's this idea that really to kind of couch it in the larger context is this. All Jews had this, uh, this awareness that God created all of us. And that because God created all of us, he's also sort of distributed amongst us all sorts of gifts, all sorts of talents and abilities. And that these gifts, talents, and abilities are meant to be used in such a way that they're given back to God so that God receives praise. That God's glorified through these things. Kind of the way the Bible talks about it. So here's an example. If you're born and you happen to be one of that very small percentage which most people don't like because you're really good looking, all right, you're like blessed with that special ability to just have good looks, period. And you're the type of person that people look at like, you're good looking, right? That's a gift that God's given you. If you're blessed with the certain ability, maybe sing, play music, uh, you're artistic. Uh, if you're good at thinking, critical thinking, maybe you're really good at numbers, or you're a good cook, or you're somebody that has certain talents and abilities, uh, let's take it even forward a little bit. If you're somebody that even breathes, all right, you see where I'm going with all this? It covers the gamut. Jews had this baseline of perspective that everything, everything we have is a gift from God, meant to be given back to God. And that the way that they viewed this is that one day, everything that we've been given from God will be required. How do we treat it? How were we responsible with it? How do we deal with it? Did we give God praise? Did we use our lives and the gifts and the talents and the abilities that God gave us to give God glory? Or did we use the gifts, talents, and abilities that God gave us to live in such a way to bring ourselves glory, to draw attention to ourselves, to place ourselves on center stage so that we can be sort of the person that gets all the glory? Did we use our talents, treasures, and abilities to earn for ourselves money so that we can get a name for ourselves. So maybe if you don't have good looks or, don't, or are not able to sing or all these other types of things. But you are really gifted at making money so now you get a lot of money. But you do so in such a way so that you draw attention to yourself so that you can be that guy. Or that girl that has all the money, all the toys, all the goods. And underneath that is sort of this egotistical drive that says... I just want people to notice me. If Central to Jewish thought was this mentality that everything that we've been given has been gifted to us as a means so that God can be glorified through our lives and it will be required from us one day. Therefore, the way the Jews viewed it was the best way to serve God were through these charitable deeds, acts of righteousness, almsgiving, however you want to view it. And the way that we did this, the way that Jewish people had understood this, was we, we give our goods away. We help people. So if I got, you know, a lot of extra coats, and somebody doesn't have a lot of extra coats, I, I use my money to bless other people. Or if I have ability to make money, I use my ability to make money to help bless other people. It's, it's not a matter of saying, well, maybe I shouldn't make money. Maybe making money is a sin. Making money is not a sin. If God's given you the ability to make money, use it. Make money. But use it in such a way that you make money with everything in perspective. This is the way the Jews would have understood charitable deeds or acts of righteousness. That everything that we have is given to us, is gifted to us as a means and will be, we will be held accountable one day to God, before God for all the things that we've been given. This is why central to Jewish thought, everything is sacred. Did you hear that? Everything is sacred. There was not this distinction between secular and sacred. Everything was a gift from God. It was meant to be given back in praise and worship to God and also as a means of blessing and helping other people. The way the Jews would have viewed it like this, here's one simple way. We are blessed so that we can be a blessing. Does that make sense? That's the way God viewed this. That's the way the Jews would have understood this. So when Jesus talks to his people, and he says, let your deeds of righteousness 
be done in such a way. He's not saying, stop working, don't help other people. In fact, what he's to the contrary, he's saying when you do these things, just make sure that you do it the right way. Now, it's important to note that what Jesus is not saying is that righteous deeds save us. All right, this is sort of an argument that Paul picks up later in the New Testament, in his writings, and is basically going to fine-tune this and bring this down to its baseline and try to make some arguments saying that it is not by acts of righteousness, helping other people, doing good things, that we find favor with God. Rather, because we found favor with God, we do acts of righteousness. Okay? That's the order that Paul's going to make it. James, Jesus' half-brother, also basically says the same thing. So he'll say something like this. Uh, religion, pure religion is this. Helping people in need. That's the same idea that's going to be picked up and conveyed throughout the remainder of the New Testament. So, to put these things in a proper order is this. If, the way Jesus is talking to the covenant people of God, he's saying, because you're covenant people of God, and because you live in such a way whereby you do acts of righteousness, make sure you do them in the right way. Don't do them with a hypocritical attitude. Don't do them in such a way where you toot your own horn and you draw attention to yourself. Don't do them in such a way where you are seeking to draw attention to yourself or to accumulate wealth just simply for yourself as a means of really propping yourself up. But do your deeds of righteousness in a way where they really give glory to God. Let me give you an example of how this sort of flows in first century. Uh, There's a verse I'll put up on the screen. Uh, I think go forward once. There we go. It's out of a book called Tobit. We actually don't um, consider this part of kind of what's called the canonical writings, part of your Bible. Uh, from a Catholic background or maybe even a, a, an Orthodox type of a background, you might actually have this book in there. It's part of a little collection of books called the Apocrypha. We don't consider it um, canonical for several reasons, but I don't have to get into it. I'll probably say one of them in just a moment here. But I want you to hear. This was written two centuries uh, before Jesus was on the planet. This is what was going on. This is what it said. Prayer is, a good, is good with fasting and alms, or giving away your money, more than laying up treasures of gold. In other words, it's saying prayer is good, it's even better when you fast, and giving away your money is even better than storing up for yourselves treasures on this planet of gold. And then it goes on in verse 9, it says, for alms deliver one from death and save, uh, and, this, and the same is that which purges away sins. This is one probably pretty good reason why we don't consider this book canonical or inspired is because verse 9 it says the alms that delivered from death and the same also takes away sin. So whatever this guy's writing he's basically saying if you give away your money to the poor that's really good because you'll save yourself. That's one of the reasons why we don't view this as inspired. But what this does, this gives us an interesting little context as to the way the Jews would have thought about acts of righteousness. Okay so check this out. They're talking about prayer. They're talking about fasting He's talking about giving money away. In the very last section, he talks about storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Okay, so check this out. Verse 1, uh, Jesus talks in, in Matthew 6, Jesus talks about doing your acts of righteousness. So here, Jesus is going to um, talk about giving your money away. Next, in about verse 7 on through about verse uh, 15, Jesus talks about praying. Then verse 14, uh, Jesus to verse 15, Jesus talks about fasting. Then check it out, verse 19, guess what Jesus talks about? Storing up for yourselves treasures. Where? Not on this planet, but in heaven. So here's what I think is happening. I think Jesus, obviously, because he was a first century Jew living within first century culture, he no doubt was familiar with the book Tobit, which would have been probably within the mainstream thinking of most Jews of Jesus' day, which would have been familiar with giving away your money to the poor, which would have been familiar with fasting and praying and storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So Jesus, I think, tackles misconceptions that sort of had arisen in people's minds about these acts of righteousness. Praying, fasting, giving your goods away. Because somehow in the minds of the people first century, these just became sort of routine. Just actions. In other words, you just do it because tradition. Alright? It's just tradition. We don't even know why we do these types of things. I mean, think about this. How many of us in the, this present day, I mean, how many of us just do things for no real reason? We just simply do it. 
I mean, think about how many things in our lives we just simply do just because. We never really stop to ask questions why, but we just simply do it. That's what Jesus is kind of trying to challenge. He's basically taking them and challenging them and saying, listen, when you do acts of righteousness, when you people who follow me give your money away to the poor, and when you guys fast and when you pray, when you do these things, do them in a way that's different than what's being observed around you. Do it in a way like I'm going to propose. The second thing that we're going to take a look at here is Jesus talks about these acts of righteousness. The second thing is we're going to take a look at this real promise of reward. I think this is really important to note because throughout this whole passage right here, uh, the first uh, several verses of the book of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks a lot about this promise of reward. It's really important to kind of note this because I think it's easy and I think for some reason it's kind of entered into the mindset of modern day Christians that the real highest virtue of doing good is to just be good for goodness sake. Alright? And, and, and that actually comes not from the Bible but from St. Nick. Alright? I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's really not biblical. It's not the Bible's prescription as to how to do acts of righteousness. I mean, it might sound noble, especially when you compare it to alternatives, all right? When, when, when we have somebody who comes around and they're like, hey, I want to help you, and you're like, sweet, this is awesome. So they help you, they fix your tire, and as soon as you're done, they're, they're done fixing your tire in your car, they're like, that was, that was tough. Um, you're like, high five? Like, no. Like, cash, you're, you're kidding me. I thought you helped me just because you're a nice person. You know what I mean? But when someone comes along and says, I just want to help you just because I want to help you. Period. We have the tendency to look at that and be like, ah, that's the higher virtue. Right? That's the higher way to go. But the reality is, is that is not the way that the Bible prescribes acts of righteousness. I mean, uh, here's a big word for you. Altruism. this, This notion that just doing good for the sake of being good is really not the Bible's prescription as to how to live righteously, how to do righteousness, how to act good, okay? It might sound like a better alternative than what the world proposes, but it's not the way that the Bible proposes. So here's the way that God wants for us to understand this. So here's a few verses. Take a look at, first of all, it talks about verse 2. When you give to the needy, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. He says that they might be praised by others. The very last part of verse 2, he says, they've received their reward. And Jesus goes on, he says, but you, when you pray, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And your father who sees in secret, God, God will reward you. Okay, so take a look at this again. Jump forward at about verse 5. Jesus says, when you pray, don't be like hypocrites. They stand in synagogues, they stand on street corners, they talk real loud, they pray real loud, they want everybody to see them. He says, the problem is they've received their reward. But basically, Jesus goes on and contrasts that with, he says, but not you, but you guys who follow me, there has to be another incentive for reward to drive you. Now, this might be kind of a new concept for some of us, the idea of actually putting in our minds something that drives us that has to do with reward. That might be foreign thinking for us, because again, we tend to be more influenced by Secular psychologists and secular philosophers that cause us to think just simply being good, for goodness sake, is the right way to go and be human. But Jesus' whole point is, no, the real way to be human, the real way to be different, is to live whereby you place value in the infinite reward that God himself offers. Some of us might be surprised to actually consider that God himself offers reward for us to serve him. But the issue is this, all right? We have this difficulty sometimes dissecting what this, what's a real reward, all right? I mean, I think if we really pull everything back, our biggest problem is we have a hard time distinguishing between good rewards and the highest rewards. The highest reward, all right? Let me, let me try to define this for you just a little bit. There's actually two Greek words that are used here uh, to, de- to define reward. The first 
word that's used for reward is in verses 2 and 5. This has to do with the type of reward that the scribes and the Pharisees, or Jesus sort of uh, uses the term uh, hypocrites, the way that they have gotten their reward. And it's the word misthos. Um, and basically can mean like reward or hire or someone who gets wages. The second of which that Jesus uses is in verses 4 and 6. And it basically also can be translated in a lot of the same ways, like to pay or give or render or reward, yield. These are the ways in which this is used in the New Testament. And, and what happens is we can read this and think, aren't they the exact same thing? And I think the best way to maybe describe it would be for me to try to give you a little bit of a snapshot into myself as a father who's got two daughters, all right? Yes, we've got chores in our house. Yes, I do ask my kids to do certain things, you know, put away their laundry or to put away dishes that are in a dishwasher, vacuum up. We feel that's part of our role to try to be responsible. But because we want to be good parents and fair, we do also have a promise of reward. And the reward in a lot of ways, obviously, is like, we'll give them allowance. So we're like, okay, allowance. Here's, you'll get X amount of money for doing this. Is that agreeable to you? They're like, yeah, it's agreeable, right? So in some ways, it's kind of like a contract. So at the end of the day, when they come to us, they're like, hey, we vacuumed. We put away our dirty clothes. We cleaned up, took the dog for a walk. Everything's cool. Um, can we get paid? And the reality is, is, yeah, we'll give them pay. We'll give them their due. We will miss those them. We will give them their reward. And it's, in some ways, it's like a cold, hard, contractual type reward. All right? Uh, the other word that's actually used can also mean the same idea, but it's, it's fuller. It'd be this, the distinction between me just giving them their paycheck and me sitting down with them and saying, come here. I'm going to give you a big hug, and I hug my little daughter, and I'm like, you know what, I kiss her in the cheek, and I'm like, you know what, I love you. I'm so proud of you. You did such a good job. You know, let's go get some yogurt, and afterwards, come back, we'll snuggle on the couch, we'll watch a Cosby show. That sound good? Yes. You know, and we'll sit on the couch, we'll snuggle, we'll watch old Cosby shows, leave with the beavers. That's our greatest joy in life, in our family room. It's awesome. My kids love it. And that is this idea of this bigger promise of reward. So my kids, if I were to, at the end of the day, ask what would I want them to really, truly long for? A wage or hanging out with dad? Hanging out with dad. Both in some ways are rewards. One is cold. One is immediate. One is contractual. One is, in many ways, infinite, long-lasting, and actually, truly satisfies the deep makeup of who they are as human beings. And this is what Jesus is saying, is that, listen, there's, there's two types of rewards. The problem is we very seldomly figure it out. We oftentimes are confused about what the true promise of reward is. And this is why. This is why so many human beings are lost. They're even in bondage to certain forms of obsession over themselves, over faulty types of rewards, and they live for these things. They give all of their energy, all of their talent, all of their goods, all of their treasures to accumulate more of this false reward. And all it really offers is something very, very temporary. When the promise that Jesus is saying, don't be like the hypocrites who just get this temporary payment. When your father really, truly wants to snuggle with you, hang out with you, bless you, and give to you something beyond what you can ever even imagine. Don't settle for less. One of my favorite quotes, I've said this many times, is from uh, writing by C.S. Lewis. I'm going to read it to you. The next slide says this. I'm going to read you the whole quote because I think it's really good. It says this. Indeed. If we consider the unblushing promises of, the, of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. So here's what C.S. Lewis is saying, is that we recognize that this idea of reward is actually offered all throughout the Bible. Especially in the Gospels. The Gospels become very poignant when it comes to God actually offering reward to his children to follow him. And get this, the reward that actually God offers is himself. So some of you might hear that and be like, oh, really? And if that's not enjoyable to you, it's a very good chance that either A, you're not a Christian. Your eyes have not been opened to the beauty and the infinite worth and value of God. Or two, you've had your appetite so 
satisfied or temporarily appeased by all sorts of other temporary delights in this world that you have become confused as to what true, infinite worth and value and satisfaction is all about. Does it make sense? So here's what C.S. Lewis says, is that God has definitely offered all sorts of means of reward. He says, our Lord, I think, would find our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like ignorant children who want, or an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't even begin to imagine what is meant by the offer of having a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. That is so true that so many of us just simply settle for lesser things. Do you know that simply putting all sorts of money into your goods can actually be something infinitely less than what God truly has for you? That's what C.S. Lewis is trying to say. I think that's really what Jesus is trying to say. Here's the rest of this, and I finish up here, this section. Money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man a mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a, lo- for a real lover. And he is not a mercy for desiring it. A general who fights well in order to get a peerage is a mercenary. A general who fights for victory is not. Victory being the proper reward of the battle as marriage is the proper reward of love. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on as, or to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in its consumption. Let me try to put it this way. In the end, what Jesus is trying to say is the ultimate reward that we ought to be looking for is the love that comes from God. God is the reward. God is the treasure. God is the one he's saying that really you can either be like a hypocrite trying really hard to get as much as you can to satisfy your life, to satisfy your ego, to stroke something inside that just didn't get stroked by dad when you're really young because you're really insecure, or you can live in such a way whereby God becomes the true reward. It's really where he's driving with all this. So I want to finish up with this real last thing here as we kind of bring this to a close. That Jesus really talks about this whole issue of character. That's really where he's going with this entire ordeal is who are we really? What are we truly made up of? And one of the best ways to really determine this is, is who are we living for? What, what type of incentive drives us? All right, Because the bottom line is this. We are all driven by incentive, right? Would you agree with that? We all do things because of some hope or promise somewhere along the way. Would you agree with that? Somewhere along the way, we get this idea in our mind that if I go out with this person, date this person, somehow I'll be recognized as having a really good-looking girlfriend, or somehow I'll be satisfied that, that some way, somehow... Something somewhere along the line will actually make me happy. Or we have this mentality of when we help other people, maybe because we'll be recognized, somebody will acknowledge us and stroke our ego. And our ego is really what we want to have stroked. We want to feel good about ourselves. Or maybe sometimes the reason why we work so hard is to get a lot of money because we know that money translates into success. Success translates into a lot of things. And when you drive around in a very, very nice car, people actually recognize you. See what I'm saying? I'm, all I'm simply trying to point out, is there anything wrong with having a nice car? No. All right, is there anything wrong with having a nice house, a big house? Not at all. Not at all. But when the things that we have become this thing that we strive for because somehow we feel that it will be what satisfies us, Jesus says you're actually living like a hypocritical person. When in reality, what you should be doing is stripping that away and recognizing that the Father, God, your Father, your Creator, God, who gifted you with everything you have, every talent, every ability, every look, everything you have, God has gifted it to you. You will be accountable to Him, but He's gifted it to you so that you would find enjoyment from Him, in Him, as the ultimate reward. 
And yeah, there's different perks and blessings along the way. I want to finish this little section up here with this. I had lunch with a, uh, a friend of mine this past week. I actually got to know him a little bit over the past several months. He's a guy that's just recently um, packed up his family, and they're getting ready to move to another country and uh, to start a kind of a missions work elsewhere. And I was sitting with him, and I just asked him, I said, listen, what is your real drive? What is, what is your incentive behind picking up your family, moving, selling everything you got, and just going away? He's like, you know, to be really honest with you, my, my main incentive, the thing that really drives me is, is I have this opportunity that God's given me. Is I'll, you know, I went to Cal Poly. I learned how to do, uh, I think like ag science is what he, what he took, and his wife uh, learned how to work with disabled kids in this portion of China that they're going to be going to is an area that has a whole people group that has never heard the gospel before. And his wife is like, you know, I want to be able to go work in these orphanages and help out some of these disabled kids. And he's like, I want to go in this particular village because their main staple of food is barley. And barley's good, but there's a lot of uh, deficiencies that they are not getting in their diet. And he says, I know if I can go there, I can use actually my ag science abilities and help them to grow different types of vegetables and plants and stuff that can actually give them a full diet. I'm like, is that your main drive? He's all, no. That's just an inroad so I can tell them about Jesus. I'm like, so that's your real drive. Like, you'd be so willing to sell everything for that. He's like, yeah, I guess that's it. He's like, people always talk to me about the type of sacrifice I'm making. He's like, be really honest with you, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice. I'm doing it because I'm driven. I just want people to know Christ. And I'm not saying that's like everybody's got to follow in the same footsteps. That's not God's call for everybody. But what I am saying, is that when we are driven by incentive of recognizing that God is a treasure in and of himself, it changes the way that we think and act and live. Does that make sense? The last thing that Jesus drives home is his issue of character. we we'll finish up right here. Uh, oftentimes he talks about, in this section here, don't be like the hypocrite. I think the real issue that he's driving home here is a hypocrite was an actor. Really, back in ancient Greek culture, it was just an actor. They put these masks up in front of their face. And when they wanted to go backstage and change a particular character, they would put on another mask. They'd come out with another mask. And they'd play the part. And he's saying, don't be like these guys. They're actors. Because genuinely inside their heart, this is not really truly who they are. They are somebody else. And when they come to the stage, when they pray, when they do their religious duties, that's not really truly who they are. They are actually acting. But Jesus not you guys. It's not what I have for you. That's not what I want for you. I want you to be genuine. I want you to live in such a way whereby when you give your goods, you give it away with a mentality that's driven by reward from your infinite, loving, eternal Father. And when you pray, don't pray like these hypocrites who do so in a very horrible manner that's just trying to draw attention to themselves. When you pray, pray expecting to receive from your Father. When you fast, don't fast like these guys, but fast expecting, knowing that your Father will reward you. That's the type of relationship your Father wants to have with you. Okay? I want to finish with this little section here of Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says this. Paul's basically what he's going to do. He's going to make an appeal to this group of Corinthian believers. And what happened real fast is Paul wrote a letter, 1 Corinthians, and he was pretty harsh to these guys. And he had to rebuke them on a lot of different things. And after Paul's letter sort of uh, circulated around, people were kind of gossiping about Paul, saying, you know, maybe Paul doesn't really like us. Maybe Paul's a jerk. Maybe Paul's really not an apostle. You know, maybe Paul's really not a pastor. All right? All these rumors were circulating around about Paul. So Paul writes 2 Corinthians to say, look, I'm really bummed. I'm really bummed with your response. I'm hurt. I'm troubled. I've given my life to you guys. Everything that I said, I give you guys a rebuke, and you guys fly off a handle think I hate you. Paul's like, that's not me. I actually love you. So what Paul basically says in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we're treated as imposters. In other words, everybody thinks we're all fake. But he says, in reality, we're actually true. We're genuine. And I'm actually speaking to you guys out of sincerity of heart. In verse 11, Paul jumps forward. He says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. In other words, we're not holding anything back. We're, we're not trying to act one way in front of you and then act a different way or be something else behind you. We're just trying to be wide open. Everything's on the table. Everything, what you see is what you get with us. That's what he's saying. He says in verse 12, he says, 
you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. In return, I have to speak to you as children. Therefore, Paul says, you guys, widen your hearts. Here's where he's going with this. The reason why you guys are so full of frustration and anger right now, because your affections are really misplaced. It's exactly what Jesus says. Your incentive is messed up. You actually think that true reward comes here and now. What you can get, who you can be seen as, who you can be seen with. But, but what Paul's really trying to say is that the affections are messed up. You guys are not seeing things clearly, that your affections have become skewed. So Paul's point to them is, is listen, because of that, I have to speak to you guys as like little babies, little children in God. I mean, you're Christians, but I'm urging you to, to widen up. It's interesting that Paul doesn't say, sometimes older Christians, people that have been Christians for a long time, they think that true Christians actually become more narrower and more strict and more reserved. It's actually the opposite. Mature Christians become wide and broad and big, and their heart becomes very open to lots of things. Things that used to trouble them way in the past don't trouble them as much now because they're growing, they're expanding. The next little section here, Paul finishes with this little spot right here in verse 14. He goes on to say in the context, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? Take a look at the very last verse, verse 16. What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? Take a look at the next slide. He says, therefore, he quotes from an Old Testament passage, go out from their midst, be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. And what basically Paul is trying to drive at here, he says, like, look, you know, when he asks sort of this hypothetical question, what, what fellowship does righteousness have with unrighteousness? Um, why are you guys being unequally yoked together with non-believers? Here's, I think, their question, or their response to that question would be, well, good business? We can make good money? We can have a good life now? We can enjoy all this stuff in Corinth here now? And Paul's like, you're not getting it. Your affections are too small. They're too limited. They're too narrow. It's exactly the same words that get resonated in C.S. Lewis's statement. Jesus finds our desires too small. We're way too easily satisfied. And here's what Jesus is saying. When you live and follow me and live the kingdom life, don't live like hypocrites. Living two lives. Instead, live like children of God. Be like little mirrors reflecting something of the character and the nature of God. Don't be hypocrites. Don't act one way and be something else. It's almost as if when Christians, Christians, people that really love God, like the Corinthians did, they were Christians. It's as if they're acting out of character. When in reality what God wants is for us to be in character. In such a way where our lives reflect something of the character, nature, the beauty, love of God. That when we give, we give, not because it's a religious duty, we have to do it. But we give generously because God is a giver. When we pray, pray for other people. We pray because God actually intercedes for us. Alright? When we make sacrifices, like fasting. We, we make sacrifices because God makes sacrifice. You see where we're going with all this? The Sermon on the Mount is really about, not us, it's Jesus. And it's a call to a lifestyle that follows Christ by repenting of our sin, turning away from bad lifestyles that are full of holding on to small, narrow affections calls us to a broad life full of God. Okay? So that means for some of us on a practical level, that means for some of us we've got to repent from that. We've got to repent from an attitude that is acting, that looks like we're religious, that looks like we're Christian, but in reality we're not. We're not living it. Guys, it's a call to lay aside 
masks and just say, I want Jesus. I want the Father to be seen in my life. It doesn't mean we're perfect. I mean, you guys, bottom line is our church is full of lots of imperfect people. You know, it's funny because we can come to church and I don't know where this comes from, but we have this mentality that's like, I got to go to church, I got to look good. All right? You, you, the funny thing is you don't got to look good. And some of you actually taken me up on that because I look at you right now and you're like, you don't look good. Thank you. Thank you. That's good. That's actually good. But for some of us, we're like, we got to look good. we got to have the biggest Bible. we got to be, you know, act righteous. No, you don't. Really, I mean, do you think you're fooling God? You're really, I mean, God's not sitting there being, oh, I had no idea. I had no idea. I had no clue that you were such a hypocrite. God knows. And the best thing for us as a body to just be like, be real with that, to be genuine with that, to just recognize Hey, we're having hard times. I need Jesus. You need Jesus. We all need Christ. That's the way that the kingdom advances, is by people just being genuine, recognizing that we don't want to be hypocritical. We don't want to put on masks and act like something we're not. We're going to respond right now to the Lord, and by worshiping Him, by singing to Him, by giving our tithes and our offerings to Him, we're going to respond also by partaking of communion today. We've got communion elements And this is really for us to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. This is why, really, we love Jesus. Because Jesus sacrificed himself. He gave up for us. And we love him. I mean, we love him. So we're going to give songs of praise to him, worship him. We're going to give back love to him. Um, We'll give our tithes and our offerings to him. If you're one of our guests, please don't feel any obligation to give. But if you call this your church... This is a way for us to give back joyfully and generously to God. We'll partake of communion. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I encourage you, don't partake of communion. There's a lot of things that we can do together as a big group. There are certain things together as a church we really do together as a family. Communion is one of them. Communion signifies that you are in a covenant relationship with God. It basically breaks down to this. You have confessed your sins to God. God has washed your sin and has brought you into a new relationship through Jesus. We partake of communion to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross and to thank him for that. So I'm going to pray. We'll give joyfully. We'll sing. We'll partake of communion. And we'll worship. And we'll go back into this world and hopefully be like little reflectors, shining how good God is while we do our righteous acts. Out of a heart of righteous character that's gifted to us from a new heart that Jesus gave us. Father, we thank you that salvation really is a miracle that comes from Jesus. We give back to you right now everything, our tithes, our offerings, our gifts, our voices, even our sin, we lay it at your feet, Lord, and say, please take it. We don't want to be fake. We want to be genuine before you, God. Help us, we pray, to worship you even right now.